Greetings, everyone. Kyle here. Welcome to our 2023 Memorial Day podcast. This is episode one of two. Before we get going, all of us at Owens Recovery Science would like to say a sincere thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal with these annual installments is twofold. One, we want to raise awareness and knowledge of Memorial Day. It's estimated that only 28% of the U.S. population know what Memorial Day is about. Not long ago, admittedly, I was in the camp of those that do not know. So let's address that real quick. The purpose of Memorial Day is to honor those soldiers who have died in combat serving our country. It is not Veterans Day. That happens in November. For those that have served, Memorial Day is often a strange dichotomy of grief and celebration. A couple things that you can do on Memorial Day to honor those heroes who have lost their lives on the battlefield. One, you can observe the National Moment of Remembrance. This is a one-minute moment of silence that should be observed at 3 p.m. local time. If you have started this podcast at the time we published on our social media channels, you can observe that moment of silence with us. Thank you if you're doing that. The second thing you can do is to wear a red poppy. If you listen to last year's podcast, you can hear a nice detailed history of how the red poppy came to be used uh, as a way of honoring those who have died. The second goal of the, these annual installments is to tell the stories of those who have fallen so that their legacy lives. To accomplish this, we will be bringing on a number of different current and former service members to memorialize their fallen brothers and sisters. The wounds of battle extend far beyond the battlefield, and we want this yearly installment to be a means of sharing with the purpose of healing. Additionally, we extend an open invitation to our listeners. If you have a family member, friend, colleague whose stories should be told, please reach out to us. The easiest way to do that is to send an email to the email address info at owensrecoveryscience.com. In this podcast, Johnny talks with retired Major General Daniel Walrath. Major General Walrath was commander of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team of the 101st Airborne Division in 2002 when they were ambushed by two suicide bombers. He suffered a high-energy lower extremity trauma, resulting in 28 surgeries over the course of three months. He nearly lost his life, and ultimately he required the use of the Ideo brace to be able to walk and then, of course, run. He tells the story of his years of service within the military up into that fateful day of the two suicide bombers attacking them, and he memorializes the three service members and one civilian who died in this encounter. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. All right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science podcast. Um, this is a very special podcast that we are planning to do every year um, around this time. We did our, our first uh, set of them last year, and it's our Memorial Day um, podcast. And so 
if, if anyone's followed us or, or knows us, they know that we uh, have a special place in our heart for the military. You know, what we do as a company, as Owens Recovery Science, is, is kind of born out of what we learned um, during OEF and OIF and, and, and the ultimate price that some of these service members paid, um, not only the ultimate, ultimate price um, of, of no longer being with us, but also just going through what it takes to, to recover from, from some of these devastating injuries. And so um, we, we really want to honor those that, that gave the ultimate price on the battlefield. And um, the, the ultimate price continues because we're still losing some of these, these service members to this day. Um, one of our former patients at the Center for the Intrepid um, just unfortunately um, took his life uh, several weeks ago. And, and this is a too common occurrence um, one of one of Zach Dunkles, if you listen to our podcast, you know, Zach was also a Marine that served multiple tours. One of his buddies just took his life as well. So this isn't just Memorial Day for those that, that died on the battlefield because the battlefield continues for, for a lot of these individuals. So with, without further ado, though, I'm very excited to, to have this distinguished gentleman on here, not only because he's my, my coffee drinking buddy and, and good friend, um, he's also a, a, a former patient. And I, I, I've said this before, Dan, I, I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but I said, if you looked up the definition of an army soldier in the dictionary, they should probably have you there, you know, not, not only with your stoic kind of chin, um, but also just, you know, what you, what you've accomplished and, and the way you've approached um, being a service member. And so I have today the, the distinguished honor of having Major General Dan Walrath recently retired, by recently, just very recently retired. Um, congratulations. And so just going into your bio here, you know, it's, again, I do these bios with our guests all the time, and it always makes me feel like, dang, what have I accomplished in this life here? So this bio is almost too much to do, so I'm, I'm going to hit the highlights. But, um, you know, uh, General Walworth, he went to the United States Military Academy in 1988, and, and came out of, of West Point and became um, uh, infantry uh, lieutenant, second lieutenant. And Dan, I want you to go into how that was maybe not your first choice of going into the military you, in, in, in your hearing might have messed up some of the other stuff. But I think luckily for the military, you, your calling was really being in the infantry. And he served for 33 years um, in airborne air assault, mechanized and special operation units, including 10 years as, as an army ranger commanded at, at pretty much every level from the platoon level to, to the theater. Um, and he ended his career down here, luckily for us, getting to hang out again back in, in San Antonio um, as, as the commander of Army South, so U.S. Southern Command, um, and came down here uh, again as a major general. He spent a, a ton of time deployed, over six years deployed, and, and, uh, and multiple of those are in combat operations, including four deployments in Iraq from 1991 to 2008, and five deployments in Afghanistan from 2002 and to 2019. So not only did he sacrifice, obviously his family really sacrificed um, with, with that many deployments. And then unfortunately, um, on that fourth deployment in Afghanistan in 2012, um, there was a, a, just a terrible attack that occurred with himself and, and, and multiple others from a suicide bomber attack. Um, and, and he had a, a real um, crippling high energy, low extremity trauma, limb salvage to his, his lower left leg, as well as other injuries. And, and that's kind of where our paths eventually crossed once he was stabilized 
um, and, and worked his way back from Afghanistan all the way to Walter Reed and then down to the Center for the Intrepid. And then this amazing story where not only did we, you know, maybe he was not going to keep his leg and then maybe, you know, he, he won't ever you know, really be able to be on in, in military career to, yeah, I'm going to continue and deploy and, and, and do pretty much get back to, to this amazing high level and, and retire um, with command down here. I'm also going to put out his family is amazing. I, I got to know his his wife and and, and his now his children. And one son's going to be a future army astronaut. And the one other one's going to be an actress, and the other one's uh, going to be a, a mathematician and just got into Stanford. So whenever my kids are are being bratty, I just I, I use your kids as examples. They just step their game up. Um, and he's about to move to the beautiful Pensacola, Florida, and have a house on the beach and and enjoy the good life. So. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Johnny, thanks for that. Uh, uh, thanks for the introduction and, and all the kind words. And I'm certainly a, a product of a team effort. Um, and thanks for your efforts to uh, to continue to remember the sacrifices of so many with uh, with this podcast. So thanks very much for having me. It's my, great to be here. And it's awesome to have you. So let, let's jump right into this. So all right. Basically, what were you like 17, 18 when when you are, are going to roll into the military academy back in back in 1988? What what drove you to to choose this career path? And, and then obviously you took it 33 years. So just kind of lead us into that. So it was actually uh, well before I was 17. Uh, I was in the fourth grade. Uh, I don't know how old that would have made me, but uh, I, in the fourth grade, I remember my teacher lady named Mrs. Curtis that did one of these things where she went around the room asking everyone to, to speak or to write about what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I remember at the time I said I wanted to go to the Naval Academy and I wanted to be a Naval Aviator. And really where that came from, I, I, I don't know, but I, I remember that from that point forward, that was kind of what I was focused on doing was was uh was joining the military and specifically in the navy and you know my dad i grew up in a navy family my dad was uh uh enlisted in the navy was a was a career sailor um you know served for 30 years my mom had been in the navy uh got out shortly after my parents got married that's where they met um you know i grew up most of my time, I wasn't born in Pensacola, but I, from the first grade on, uh, you know, lived and grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is a, for those of you who don't know, is a Navy town. Uh, it's the home of Naval Aviation, it's where the Blue Angels are based. So I was just kind of surrounded by, by the military and by the Navy specifically. So, you know, fast forward into high school, so that's what I did. I, I applied to the Naval Academy and, 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 uh, so you can imagine my uh, shock and disappointment when the Navy, when the uh, Naval Academy informed me that, that I, they, they weren't going to take me. And because I had a hearing loss and so I wasn't able to pass the, uh, the hearing requirements in the, in the pre-entry physical. And so that was as many, you know, I, you know, as many times as I tried to retake it and, and just press the button uh, randomly, that, that didn't work. And so, uh, so I was, I was, uh, I didn't really have a plan B. Um, and so my guidance counselor at the time, and it, it suggested, you know, why don't you apply to these other military academies, Coast Guard and Air Force and Army. I really didn't have any interest in any of those, but I, I did so for the primary purpose, just to, 
so my guidance counselor would leave me alone and stop bugging me about it. And, uh, but to her credit and many thanks to her for, for being persistent, uh, the military academy came back and said, uh, maybe it was a slow recruiting year, I don't know, uh, but they were willing to give me a waiver. They have the same hearing requirements as the Navy, but for whatever reason, they were willing to give me a waiver and, and said, hey, we'd like you to join the class of 1988. Um, so that's, that's what happened. And, uh, uh, and I wouldn't change, you know, wouldn't sometimes good things happen for a reason and, uh, wouldn't change a thing. I mean, in terms of how things turned out, you know, so I went to the military Academy in the summer of 1984, uh, with really very little understanding of what the army was or what it involved. And I got there and, and said, Oh, there's this, you know, army aviation, Army, Army has an aviation branch. They can, I can fly helicopters. So I said, well, if I can't be a naval aviator, I'm going to be an Army aviator. Until I find out it's the exact same hearing <laughs> test that I couldn't pass still. Um, and so another little blow to the ego or to, to, my, to my life plan. And so I had some good friends who had been former enlisted, you know, that were now classmates and my, my tactical advisor, and Frank Kearney was a, was an instrument had just come out of Second Ranger Battalion, and and so I had these influences in my in my cadet life that kind of steered me towards being in the infantry. And so that, that, you know when I graduated, I ended up in the infantry. And like I said, I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't change a thing in terms of how things turned out. But that, that's kind of how I ended up. So they were basically you've already got bad hearing. We're going to put you in infantry where you're going to make your hearing worse. Over right. time, and, and you're gonna <laughs> less disability. We already know your baseline's bad. So, well, yeah, I mean, I ostensibly, you know, would wear earplugs, uh, and and now the army's gotten much better at, uh, you know, with some of the some of the headphone noise canceling headphones and everything to be able to protect everyone's hearing. But, um, but it it never caused me an issue throughout my career. So. Um, I always thought you wanted to be a Navy aviation just because of Top Gun. You're just like uh, a, a freak for that shift. <laughs> that might have been part of it. But my son, as my as you highlighted there, you know, my son is now in the Army and he's he was uh, he branched aviation. So he'll be flying helicopters and uh, I'll, I'll be able to live, I guess, my aviation career vicariously uh, through him. So awesome, man. Um, so your deployment, you know, you started in, in Desert Storm, I guess. Uh, it didn't start, but you were there when we were first in Iraq in the early 90s. Um, it, I, I'm correct on that, right? Right. And really, a couple of years before that, I mean, you know, back when when wars were short, I uh, was involved in, in the Panama invasion as well. Um, and then Desert Storm. Uh, correct. And then, you know, but then it, it became a different ball game, if you will, you know, post 9-11, because it was, you know, you deploy and then you deploy again and then you deploy again. And, and then, OK, maybe this time you go to Afghanistan and the next time it's to Iraq. And, you know, it became a um, not a continuous thing, but it was a it was a, a repeating cycle, if you will, um, you know, after after 9-11. So. And, I, and I guess a higher level of engagement over there, you know, when we we're really during, I guess, it was during the surge, and we were having quite a bit of service members come back injured. We we had a, a, a soldier that was over there during Desert Storm and, and was a limb salvage, you know. And um, what he was describing to the guys that he was seeing compared to what they were seeing, it just seemed like a 
completely different kind of war that we were moving into. Yeah, so just a much more, um, you know, the, the enemy that we were fighting was was much more, sh- you know, more shadowy. And, you know, our, our enemies, you know, went to school on us. So they, they saw the incredible combat capabilities that we were able to bring to bear during Desert Storm. And, and all of our enemies, both state actors and non-state actors, really kind of went to school on us and said, well, we, you know, if we want to have any hope in, in combat scenarios with the United States, we, we have to look at other ways to go about this. Because if we just go one-on-one, uh, you know, then, then we're going to suffer the same fate as what happened to the Iraqi army in 1991 and again in 2003. And so, you know, there was this clear move to these techniques that were, that were much more in the shadows, much more amorphous, unseen enemy, blending in with the population in urban terrain, coming up with these, these uh, IED type devices that, that even in armored vehicles, you know, could, could still, uh, you know, cause, cause a lot of casualties and stuff and so forth. So, uh, Become, became quite a challenge when you when you don't have the not able to see who you're fighting as much so yeah and so I guess let's move into you know how how your injury occurred so the lead up maybe to that you know what you were doing the day that, that the attack happened on you guys and some of the details of that yeah so uh August of 2012 so th- this time in Afghanistan you know, President Obama had announced that, that we were going to going to come down. You know, at that time, we were over 100,000 soldiers in Afghanistan, and he had made the decision that we were going to come down to about 60,000 or so. And so that that delta between 100,000 plus and 60 meant that we were going to have to turn some security responsibilities over to the Afghan army and that and that we were going to transition into a, more of a training, advise and assist role. So this 2012 is right in that transition as we were going from, you know, the president made the decision. So we were kind of in the transition space from going from one phase to the other. And so uh, we, we kind of had two brigades that were working in the same area. Uh, one brigade out of the 4th Infantry Division commanded by a good friend of mine, Jim Mingus. You know, what, what, we, what we say, own the battle space. Uh, in, in, in northern Afghanistan, Kunar, which is, you kind of think, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire of Afghanistan. Mm. And then my brigade, 2nd Brigade of the 101st, I was working in the same, you know, I was working with Jim's brigade in the same physical space. But I, I had all these advisor teams um, where we were, you know, be, beginning to stand up the, the advise and assist role. So, you know, we, we had these elements, leaders from my brigade, and then elements from Jim Mingus's 4th Brigade, 4th ID, were scheduled to go to this uh, security, this provincial security meeting, you know, so we're going to the, you know, the governor's mansion, if you will, of, of Kunar to meet with the, the provincial governor and, and uh, you know, his security leadership, army and police and so forth. And these, this, these are meetings that I, we had been to before. It wasn't a first time thing. We've been to, we've been to this compound before. Um, but the way you get there is you fly into this smaller helipad and then it's about a, a little less than a mile walk 
combat, you know, dismounted patrol, if you will, from when you get off the helicopter to the governor's compound. Um, and so that's what we were doing. You know, we were, we were going to myself with some of my leaders with, with uh, Jim Mingus and his leaders, we were, we were, you know, gotten off the helicopter and we're transiting to the, to the compound on the well, way. How many of you guys total were in that group? Uh, I want to say 20, 25, 20, some people, Okay. you know, mostly senior folks again. And then there was the security detail and, uh, that, that kind of secures us as we go, uh, led by, you know, then Lieutenant, uh, Flo Groberg, you know, he was the, you know, I know you, we'll, we'll come back to him, I think in a little bit, but, but he was the security detachment leader, um, that kind of had us under his wing, if you will, um, as we as we move dismounted to the uh, from the helicopter to the compound. It, then, so you guys are moving across there. Um, you've done this before. This is very high military and civilian leadership, um, all heading over there, trying to trying to get into to the to the other building, and then kind of describe what was the actual attack that occurred after that. Yeah, sure. So. Just prior to uh, arriving to the compound, there was a uh, there was a, a small canal we had to cross. So a, a Sadabad, where you know, where the provincial seat, the, the the town that we were in, it sits right on the Kunar River, and, and so there's a series of canals that come off the river. And so anyway, we had to cross this canal, and, and so you can imagine a canal with a with a small footbridge that went went over it, and, and so that that creates a, a choke point. You know that we, if anyone's trying to track us, they know we got to cross this footbridge, and so right on the near side of that footbridge was a small little, for lack of a better term, almost like an outhouse or a toll booth type structure. It wasn't it wasn't a full building or a house, but just a think of a little toll booth sitting on the near side of that footbridge. Unbeknownst to us, there were two. You know, on this particular day, there were there were two insurgents who had. had put on uh, explosive vests with ball bearings and they were they were hiding behind this little toll booth structure waiting for us knowing that you know that we'd have to cross this footbridge and they were just remained hidden until as we approached the footbridge and began to cross and the the first of the two of them stepped out and and within a matter of a few steps was was right uh, you know amongst uh, you know, our, our patrol and then he and detonated himself. Um, and, and in so doing, uh, you know, several of us were, were wounded, myself included seriously, uh, and killed, killed four of us, uh, killed four of the Americans on the patrol. Um, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, Many people may or may not know, but, you know, so Flo Groberg identified or, you know, noted, observed uh, this, this gentleman, you know, coming into the, into the patrol, you know, made some verbal warnings to, to stop or to turn around. He didn't do that. You know, he went to, to tackle the guy, um, didn't stop him from detonating, uh, but the fact that he was on the ground due to Flo's actions, I think, uh, you know, probably decreased um, the number of people that were killed. Um, still tragic that, that four people lost their lives, but his actions, I'm sure, saved lives 
um, you know, beyond the four that were that were lost. Um, and, and for that, you know, he was subsequently, you know, his actions subsequently earned him the, the receipt of the Congressional Medal of Honor. So certainly fortunate to have him and his soldiers there on, the, on that day. But, yeah, and Flo was a patient of mine as well at the Center for the Intrepid from this from this same attack. So um, amazing, his injuries weren't more devastating from the description of what happened. But he was also one of our fastest IDEO patients. He, he was a college track guy, so maybe that speed also really played out for you guys when when this all went down. What about the second attacker? So kind of a a, a stroke of luck, if you will, the, the second attacker to the best of our, and I, and I learned a lot of this after the fact and, and from some of the, the, the post-blast analysis and that was done, but it, it appears that the second attacker had remained hidden behind this, this toll booth structure with the intent of waiting for, for a response element to come. And then when the response element came, you know, we, we think his intent would have then been to have stepped out and, and, and detonated targeting the, the responding element. Uh, the stroke of good luck is it appears that the, the detonation when the first attacker detonated, that his, you know, the, the, the shock wave from his, his uh, detonation sympathetically detonated the explosive vest from the, the second guy. So he detonated, uh, you know, while he was still hidden behind the structure. So, you know, more than likely that structure, you know, when he, when he detonated, uh, you know, the, the structure probably caught most of his fragmentation and, and probably had minimal to no effect on the, on the rest of us, thankfully. Man, thankfully. So there's, you know, I talked to so many of the service members when they would get to the Center for the Intrepid and, you know, a lot of times they would like to share their story of what happened. And it was always, it was always interesting to me, you know, especially with this blast injuries. You know, some of them were like, I don't remember anything, you know, even I, I forgot what the lead up was to, boy, it was the most lucid I've ever been in my life. I remember everything. I tried to move. I was, you know, or, you know, I, I, I just didn't even want to, you know, look at my injury, thing like that. Do you, do you remember seeing the attacker come and then kind of the, what are, were the, the, the next pieces after that? Because obviously you, you had severe injury. Yeah. So I, I think I was just for whatever reason, I, I, I was in the latter category and I I clearly remember uh, it, it it's just a surreal experience it's, it's like watching yourself in a movie um, mm. I, I remember at the last second kind of catching out of the corner of my eye you know catching the catching view of this of this man walking up approaching to our, our patrol and I I literally remember thinking to myself wow that that guy looks like based on his, what he was doing, he, he was moving with a sense of purpose. He had a certain look on his face. I just remember thinking to myself, wow, that guy looks like a suicide. And as I was having that thought, you know, wow, he detonated. And, uh, and, and the next thing I remember, uh, you know, was being on the ground and just a huge, just a cloud of dust. And, you know, my, your, your, visibility and perception of everything that was around you went from, you know, whatever it was you could see to inside of this cloud of dust, you know, everything was, you know, six inches in front of my face. And that was, that was the extent of my world. Um, 
And I just remember thinking, you know, oh my gosh, did, did that, I can't believe, did that just happen? Um, and, and you're obviously worried about everyone else around you. You know, um, I, I knew many of the people uh, in, in the patrol um, to include, you know, Kevin Griffin, uh, who was you know, one of the four that was killed. He was, he was the command sergeant major for, for uh, Colonel Mingus's brigade. Uh, but I had gotten to know him. He wasn't just just from working with their brigade, um, and he he had been on the other side of the little footpath that we were walking. He'd been you know, more than five or six feet from me, and he unfortunately was you know one of the four that was that was uh, that lost his life. And so, um, uh, so you're, you're you know you're worried about everyone else around you, and um, but I remember. You know, in that cloud of dust, you know, uh, I felt a, a pain in my leg. I, I, I didn't, couldn't see my leg. I don't know if it's because I couldn't or because maybe I didn't want to look. I, I can't really know. But I remember having a pain in my leg, thinking, thinking something's wrong with my leg. I had no idea if it was still there or not. And I remember my finger, my left index finger was, was bent uh, like 120 degrees in a direction it shouldn't have been going. And I remember looking at it thinking, well, that's my finger but it shouldn't look that way. Uh, and, and I just remember, but it, but I don't f feel a thing. Thankfully I didn't. Um, uh, and, and so just thinking, wow, did that, you know, what, you know, what did that really just happen to me? Um, and so what I ended up doing for whatever reason, I, I ended up crawling over into a, again, this, if you can imagine this footbridge, there was, there were a couple of stairwells that went down uh, through the roadway, if you can imagine, down towards the canal. And so I somehow ended up crawling over to this stairwell and, and crawled down into the stairwell, um, not knowing what was going to happen next. If there was going to be another attack, I crawled into the stairwell. And so I end up kind of upside down, if you can imagine, as I, as I tumble down this stairwell. And then another guy comes in on top of me and, uh, he was a depart. He was a one of the members on the patrol from the Department of State. He was from the embassy. And it, it's kind of one of those kind of weird combat moments of humor. You know, we we kind of introduce each other ourselves to each other, and we ask if we're you know each other's okay, and say, hey, I think I got something's matter with my leg. I, I need to put a tourniquet. I need you to help me put a tourniquet on. And uh, and I remember thinking to myself at one moment, well, I'm, I'm probably screwed because this guy. Department of State probably has no idea what a tourniquet is or even how to help me put it on. And then in the course of our introduction, he's, he's, oh yeah, I'm i I'm former Marine. And so my, I went, I went from thinking, oh, I'm screwed to, all right, this guy's gonna, you know, if he's, he's been in the Marines, he's gonna know how to help me. And so he, he helped me put a tourniquet on my leg. I, again, I still didn't even know if my leg was still there. I just, I just knew that I probably needed to get a tourniquet on it. Um, and so he helped me get a tourniquet. And then within a period of time, a couple of minutes, I don't, I don't remember. The folks that weren't as seriously hurt started, at, you know, started working their way through and, and were, you know, digging those of us that were more seriously hurt, you know, digging us up and, and getting a medic to us. Um, and then I ended up within a matter of minutes, um, you know, in a litter. Uh, and they carted me to a to an MRAP, one of these big uh, armored truck vehicles that had shown up 
and, and kind of ground evac me uh, about a 10 minute ride down the road to a, a small little uh, US base that was still set up where there was a, luckily a forward surgical team. Mm. Uh, you know, so, so kind of thank for those that aren't familiar, you know, kind of thank uh, MASH, a MASH minus, you know, just a, uh, an operating table with, with, uh, with a couple of surgeons and nurses and the ability to do kind of, kind of rapid battlefield surgery to stabilize folks. And, and so luckily they got me and others that were uh, flow and others that were seriously hurt. They got us to this uh, forward surgical team. And, uh, and, and I remember, I remember getting there and, and it's what I remember of, it seems like no less than about 10 people descended on me, poking me, sticking needles in me, cutting my clothes off, asking me questions, shining lights in my eyes. And uh, somewhere in there, you know, I got a couple of doses of morphine or whatever, but I, you know, that's really my last recollection. Um, and, and, you know, ended up going into a, a, an initial surgery. Uh, but, but once I, once the narcotics or whatever they gave me took, took effect, and then I really lost consciousness or whatever the, the right medical term is, a lost memory, you know, for about the next 72 hours or so. And it's always fascinating to me, you know, how quickly they get you to these forward surgical teams at times, and, and then just kind of this step down care, you know, you go to, you know, a, a more advanced team in a, in a larger city, and then eventually you kind of make your way to launch stool. Do you, do you remember any of that of, of leaving from there going, going, I guess, to Bagram or something, uh, you know, familiar? Yeah, so I, I don't, I don't remember it directly. I, I, I've learned about it. Um, kind of after the fact, you know, one of my uh, battalion commanders, uh, a guy named Sean Davis, he he went with, he accompanied me throughout my uh, my intro, you know, throughout my evacuation in Afghanistan. So he stayed with me, and so he kind of filled in the blanks for me later. Um, so I, I I learned what happened. I don't remember it, but but uh, you know, after that initial for surgical team surgery, I, I got picked up by a, a medevac helicopter. And then the, the guy that really, one of the, I mean, again, it's a whole whole network of, of people, but one of the guys that really I, I credit my life and my leg with is uh, the flight medic, uh, a guy named Staff Sergeant Troy Halfhill. Uh, so, you know, I get loaded in the helicopter and fl they're flying me, intending to fly me to Bagram, which from where we were is about an hour flight. And so Staff, uh, Staff Sergeant Halfhill is taking care of me in the back while the medevac pilots are flying me. And he, he sees that my blood pressure, I'm starting to, I'm starting to bleed out, you know, whatever they did, it, it, um, you know, I continued to, to bleed, um, uh, you know, during the flight. And so Staff Sergeant Hatfield noticed this, he sees my blood pressure dropping and he tells the pilots, he's, he's not going to make it. If we, if we, if we keep flying to Bagram, he won't make the hour flight. And so we need to divert. Wow. So we can stabilize him. And so he, and so that's the way it works, as I learned later, is the medevac pilot, I mean, the, the, the medic is the, he's the decision maker. He, he tells the pilots what to do and, you know, based on the condition of the, of the patient. And so the, the two pilots uh, diverted. Luckily, there was another FST en route. And so they, we, they diverted and landed. And I ended up at the, another forward surgical team at, uh, at Jalalabad. And the, the team there, uh, you know, I learned later, um, you know, BJ Rice, Rob Lim, 
William Jordan and in, in the, the 274th FST, you know, got a hold of me and were able to, to get back into my leg and stabilize, you know, find the, 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 where the continued bleeding was happened to, to stabilize me in time. Um, so, you know, that whole episode, uh, you know, kind of eye-opening when you learn about it later in terms of how close you come, uh, but certainly thankful for that, to that whole crew that intervened at the right place at the right time, you know, to, to, to make sure I was able to make it to Bagram. And then in Bagram, you know, I, I went under, underwent a, uh, a, a vascular graft because basically everything on my lower left leg had been shredded for lack of a, I don't know if that's a medical term or not, but it just been shredded. And so I, to, you know, they did a vascular graft uh, to, so they could restore some blood, the blood flow to my leg and a guy named uh, Mike Hogan, Air Force doctor is the one who did that surgery, nine hour surgery. Um, and I always tell people when I later had that graft evaluated as a kind of annual checkup, uh, the initial one I had done was uh, by the chief of vascular surgery at Vanderbilt Hospital. So a very experienced vascular doctor, but someone who was not, maybe uh, had not had a lot of exposure to trauma injury and military medicine. And he commented on the quality of graft that, that I had done. And when I highlighted to him, and he asked me, hey, where, where did you get that done? Who did that? It's a great job. And when I, when I commented to him that it was done by a military doctor in a combat hospital in the middle of Afghanistan, he was, his jaw dropped. I mean, he was, he was aghast uh, uh, at that. So it's just a, uh, I guess, again, just another indicator of the, you know, the quality of military medicine that I was uh, certainly a beneficiary of. But back to your, sorry for going around in a circle there, John. No, no that's, that's your question. That's crazy. I, uh, I then, you know, was evacuated uh, to launch tool. And, and that's where I, uh, you know, they extubated, extubated me. Um, and, and that's where I came to, if you will. And that's really the, the next time I have conscious memory uh, after, which was about three days later after the, that, that, that initial treatment at the, at the forward surgical team there. That's, you know, you guys have to be at, you know, tip of the spear completely on your game in the battlefield, but you know, the, uh, the, the flight medic, Dr. Hogan, just to be that aware and, and that amazing and the, that kind of austere environment is, 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 is amazing. I mean, your, your life is in their hands basically. Yeah. Launch stool is where the majority of our service members, it's kind of this, the last step down. And then you start to make this decision, you know, where are they going to go back into the States to, for the continued long, long haul process. So how long were you over at launch tool? So it was, it was a pretty short period of time. I want to, I want to say it was uh, a day and a half. So maybe, maybe 48 hours. I, I had one or two procedures there to kind of continue to, where they were trying to continue to stabilize my, my leg, but, but, um, I was fortunately, I, I didn't have any other major wounds elsewhere. And, and so as soon as I was stable enough, then they, then they, uh, you know, I got on another plane, a medical evacuation plane and, and they, uh, they flew me to Andrews and then, and then to, uh, Walter Reed. So within about, um, you know, four and a half days, maybe a little less from, from the initial attack. I was, I was in Walter Reed. 
And I think this is an amazing piece. I know um, from when we talked, your your wife in those four and a half days somehow made it over to Launchstool um, in Germany to to be there with you. So that that shows the grit that she has. But I'm sure that was a huge relief on your side just having having her there. Yeah, absolutely. And it was um, it was not necessarily the standard protocol. Uh, yeah. But it, it, that you know, my Christine was. Uh, she was not necessarily guided by what the standard protocol was, right? She, she was intent to be there and, and she went through, uh, she had some organizations that kind of helped came to help her with arrangements. I mean, she literally had to get a passport, um, you know, within about a 24 hour period. We had a good friend, uh, who happened to work for the secretary of the army at the time, uh, in the Pentagon that, it helped her do that. Uh, and, but she, uh, she ended up on a plane and ended up in launch tool. And the great thing about that was when I came to, as I mentioned, that's where I, that's where I uh, regained consciousness. When I regained consciousness, uh, she was at my side, holding my hand. Wow. A pretty incredible relief uh, for me. Uh, so again, it wasn't a standard protocol, uh, but the fact that she was there was uh, was pretty amazing for me. So, and then you know, lots of times when we would would get the service members from Launch Tool, you know, in Launch Tool they started to understand their injury and you know maybe the extent of it, but but not the the details and you know what the future might hold, especially with these limbs. You know, am I going to keep it or? Is it going to be gone? In launch still, I guess, you, you start to understand what kind of injury you had? Uh, a little bit. Um, and you were there a short amount of time, I guess, compared to most. Uh, a little bit. But I, to, to your point, I will. Uh, I mean, there were, you know, this will kind of come back to to be relevant a little bit later. But, the, you know, there were doctors already that really they were talking to Christine because she was, I don't know that I was, I was awake. I don't know that I was necessarily coherent. Um, but you know, there, there were doctors that would, in their discussion with Christine would say, Hey, it's okay. You know, um, uh, you know, prosthetics are so advanced nowadays that, that even if, without a leg, if he loses his leg, he still has a good chance of, of, of kind of maintaining a high level of function. So my, my point to that is that there was already kind of a, a little bit of a bias that, you know, Hey, it's going to do okay as an, as an amputee. Um, and, and, and so that was, again, that was a little bit of a, you know, uh, what, what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean? You know, I, I still got my leg and, uh, but, but a little bit of that bias, it, it was, you know, came through, um, again, at least in some of the doctor's discussions with, with, uh, with my wife. So, but beyond that, it was, it was just a big question mark as to, as to what and how long and it was a, a bad saying we had you know as if they're physically attached to their their limb and still mentally attached please don't amputate it till they get to us right. <laughs> you can make more lucid decisions here exactly. and so 
you guys head over to Walter Reed and, and you know, we always say Walter Reed spills the high profile cases, you know, they, they would always divert the, the, you know, the, the, the big cases like yourself um, over there. And so, um, and they're great friends and amazing care. So, so you got to Walter Reed and that's where you began the, the kind of long rehab process. Did you have any more surgeries done by those folks? I guess you, and we'll get into it. You had an infection, which is always the, the worst part about these injuries. Yeah, so exactly that. I, I got to Walter Reed, was in the kind of intensive care ward for, uh, I want to say, four or five days, and then and then eventually got moved into the, the kind of a, a regular ward room. Um, and, and again, Christine was there with me. Um, and and so, you know, the 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 pattern, if you will, that I that kind of fell into was about every second or third day I was going in for another, another surgery, fasciotomy. Um, and so, uh, and, and that, that cycle, you know, just became it was pretty brutal. I mean, you know, the, the, the anticipation of a surgery going into a surgery and then coming out of it and the, 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 the pain post-op and then, and then right about the time you, you start to kind of, get beyond all of that, you know, then they're coming in and saying, okay, you know, we're going to go, we're going to, we're going to re repeat and recycle the same cycle starting tomorrow morning. And it just kind of, you know, mentally becomes, uh, you know, a challenge to deal with, but it, that was, that was what I was going through for the first couple of weeks was, you know, every, it seemed like every third or fourth day, you know, another, another surgery, but that was the, that was the challenge I, was dealing with that you kind of touched on was it what what became my biggest long-term challenge was was the infection and so fortunately on one hand I didn't I didn't have any major orthopedic damage you know so I didn't have to undergo a reconstruction of my bones I mean I, I lost a uh, about a four inch section of my uh yeah thank you yeah, <laughs> Which, yeah. I guess apparently you don't really need it that much yeah yeah you don't need it you it's like it's like the tonsils. We can throw right. a lot of that away. But but beyond that, you know, I didn't have to undergo reconstruction with rods and plates and screws. Thankfully, all of my damage was soft tissue. But the challenge was it was all it all got infected. So you know, the muck of Afghanistan just got blown into my leg and yeah. and and was infected. And so every time they would go in, you know, they were having to, what they explained was they're having to cut out. They'd find more infection and they they cut it out and then. And go in again, still infection, and they just continue to cut and cut and cut. But every yeah. every third or fourth day, they're having to go in. Um, so in, in total, I think at the end, uh, you know, I left I, I left Walter Reed with twenty eight total surgeries. Um, you know, over a over a three month period, um, and, and initially they eventually kind of. The, the cycle got a little bit longer, but initially it was, you know, every two, three days. And that was, uh, not, not pleasant. So you call them debridements, which sounds like these little small procedures. It's what we call just wound care. But when they're going in and you're dealing with this type of infection, they're just basically taking out frank muscle tissue. Um, you know, and so that's, that's from a functional standpoint, that's even more devastating than the bone. We always say bone heal, muscle doesn't. 
you know, muscle, it, once it's gone, it's gone type of thing. And, and that becomes the real problem. And so, you know, once you're at a Walter Reed or Center for the Intrepid or Balboa, the world start to, to mix with all the, with all the combat casualties of limb salvage, amputation. And so I, I guess you're starting to get into that whole mix and rehab. And, you know, at least at our center it was, you know, almost, you know, these, these two different thoughts, you know, lots of times from the surgical side of, okay, let's just go ahead and amputate. Let's go ahead and limb salvage. You know, I, I think you, you never were given that, but make this decision. Do you want to keep your limb or not? But, but did you at least visiting with some of the service members or talks of like, what should you do at this point? Yeah. And so the, the way it came about was um, just like you described, it was not, it was not given to me as a, here are your options. It was something that we, it became kind of discovery learning um, and, 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 you know, rightly or wrongly that, you know, it, became, it was kind of discovery learning. So it, it, after being at Walter Reed for about a month and a half, a little over a month, you know, there was a point um, I got there mid August, you know, mid to late September. I remember that when the doctor came in um, and he said, You know, um, well, I remember at some point telling my my lead doctor, um, a guy named Dr. Anderson, who was the head of the orthopedic section there. Yeah. And he had been there for better part of 10 years. So he, he yep. had quite a bit of experience uh, dealing with trauma. And I remember telling him one day that, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I, he didn't necessarily ask me. I just said, yeah. I'm not, I want you to save my leg. So you do whatever you can. You know, that's, that's where my head's at. Um, I had had a soldier who had visited me. Um, you know, again, I was second brigade 101st. There were still soldiers to give you an idea of how long-term injuries some of these guys have to deal with. There were still soldiers uh, on that had been wounded from the brigade's previous rotation um, 18 months ago, 15 months ago, and they were still in outpatient care in Walter Reed, um, yeah. you know, long-term care, but they were, they were clear they were coming to visit me. They were, you know, they were you know, trying to get you know, cheer me on and, and give me hope, uh, which I very much appreciate. And then I, I'll never forget, um, you know, one of the guys told me he was a, he was a, a single leg amputee in, uh, and I kind of told him some of the challenges I was going through. And he goes, Hey, let me just tell you, you goes, nothing beats the real thing. Yeah. And, and that stuck with me. And, and so again, that led me to tell my doctor, uh, even though he didn't ask me, I said, Hey, here's, here's what I want. And, and so to his credit, that's what he did. And, um, and uh, I remember it was, it wasn't until late September where one day he came in after one of these post-op, you know, every, every other post-op had been, yeah, we found more infection. We're going to have to go in and cut more out. Finally, one day he came in and goes, hey, I, I think you're clear of infection. And so I think your leg will be viable. And, uh, and so that was, that was certainly a relief and welcome news. But then he said, but I don't know how you're going to walk. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, well, during the course of all these debridements, as you described, you know, every time they're cutting out flesh, by the time they finally got to the point where there was no more infection, they had literally cut away all of my muscle and cut away all of the nerve tissue uh, in my, you know, below my knee. So there was nothing left to, to, to function. 
including sensation. Uh, so, so no sensation, no movement, no no muscular control. You know, nothing works below the below the knee, if you will, you know, to you know to include feeling. Um, so, again, it was the welcome good news of your legs. We're going to be able to keep you're going to be able to keep your leg, but we don't know how you're going to walk. Um, so uh, that was you know that was <laughs> that was the big unknown, you know. Um, and then, again, it was, as you well know, you know, at that time, the um, not to give away the answer to the test here, but the, you know, the idea device was relatively new at the time. And, and uh, but I, you know, Christine and I learned about it through just kind of happenstance and, and uh, coincidence. We had some good friends of ours, uh, the Kearneys, Frank and Betty Sue Kearney, visited he, he was that tack that i that i mentioned to you about that, that influenced me to go infantry uh you know when i was a cadet you know now fast forward 20 some years you know he was a, a retired lieutenant general and he was he and his wife visited me and they they knew a guy um you may remember ryan keogh oh yeah that had been injured in a motorcycle accident and had gone down to to center for the intrepid and gotten one of these new devices that was helping him walk and they, that's all they knew about it. And so they mentioned that when I, when I kind of relayed my situation, the doctor says he doesn't know how I'm going to walk. They say, Hey, you know, a friend of our son is in this situation and, and he got this device from center for the intrepid and, you know, maybe, maybe it's for you. Maybe, maybe that could be a help to you. Not, not much, not knowing much more than, than that. And so that was just a seed that was planted. And then, and, you know, completely unrelated, I had another visit um, by by my division commander, uh, Jim McConville at the time, you know, now chief of staff of the army. Uh, and he brought along another 101st soldier, a guy named Sergeant uh, Rodrigo Santos. And he was a amputee on uh, one leg. I wanna say, I can't remember which one. He was an amputee on one leg and had an IDEO on the other. And and so again, I we just kind of heard about this anecdotally from some friends, and then and then you know, a couple of weeks later, in walks Sergeant Santos, who actually has one of these devices, and, and so it was those two uh, happenings that that kind of planted the seed in, in my mind and Christine's mind that you know, hey, maybe maybe this IDEO device is could be the answer to my the question of you know how am I going to get on with life. Um, and uh, and so that you know they, 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 again, that kind of kind of planted, planted the seed, if you will, for for that. And then you know if I fast forward to you know once I was thankfully released from Walter Reed and back to Fort Campbell, then you know the guy I know you know you know Brian Jovag, the, the, yeah. was the physical therapist at at, uh, at the Blanchfield, the, the the Army Hospital at Fort Campbell, where I went back home to. You know he he kind of took over my care and. Uh, was the one who started getting my leg moving and getting me getting me kind of limping around, but he didn't know anything about the idea. But I, when I told him, to his credit, when I told him about it, say, "Hey, I heard about this device," blah blah blah, from from some friends and colleagues in the hospital. I saw, I, I met a Sergeant Santos who had one. You know, I I think that might be the answer to my to my question here. And again, to 
to Brian's credit, he didn't know anything about the IDEO, but he he didn't let that stop him. And so he was the one that reached out, you know. Yeah, he contacted me. Yeah. And, and Ryan. Went, yeah. And and so he's the one who got me down to to then see you and Ryan and, and then and go into to you know, then start the, the center for the interrupted phase in my recovery. So crazy. Yeah, this flag back there, that's Ryan Keough. Um, when he he redeployed after his injury with an IDEO with the Rangers and he carried the flag on his first mission and, and, and brought it back and gave it to me. So um, awesome. still a great friend to this day. It's weird how these connections, you know, I did know Jovag when he was up at first group as well. And he spent some time at the CFI, but, um, you know, I right. think that was pre IDEO stuff. So, so then you, you come down to, to sunny San Antonio um, from Walter Reed with, with the mission to get the IDEO. And so I, I guess I'll, I'll just put out what the IDEO is. It's an intrepid dynamic exoskeletal orthosis. It's that's the longest name you you should never have on a device. <laughs> we, you know, we. So my my partner in crime, Ryan Blanc. So Ryan Blanc was the prosthetist there. Just probably one of the most brilliant prosthetists I think there is in the country. And the guy like just was on a mission. Just just worked like crazy. Um, we were going to meet with some of the command at our hospital and the, the device was doing well and they were looking at maybe patenting the device and they said you guys need to come up with a name and that was as we're walking over there <laughs> so we just started throwing these things around and came <laughs> up with that name and so we said the idea and then there's actually this big company in california called ideo it's like a marketing firm and so they're like well you can't even you know can't even use that name or whatever. So anyways, they shouldn't let us knuckleheads try and come up with a name. Um, Cause they, I had some really bad names, uh, but those all got shot out of the water. So the IDEO basically um, is, is a exoskeleton. We like to call it that, you know, it's not truly a brace that acts like a prosthetic. Um, and, and so we had become very frustrated with, with injuries like yours that they say it's viable, <laughs> but you know, good luck walking. And oh, by the way, if you want to run, no way. And oh, by the way, if you want to redeploy, that's that's not going to happen. And, and that takes away a lot of, of who you are um, as, as a person. And just not being able to run and do what you want to do takes away who you are as a human. And so um, this device was to help service members do that because we were seeing a lot of folks like yourself who would come back and say, this is terrible. Just go ahead and let's amputate. And it was typically about, you know, a year to two years out from that injury, everything, you know, was, was healed. And, you know, these folks would come back and amputate and that just drove us nuts. So we came up with this device and, and I was in charge of trying to t teach people how to use it. <laughs> and so I, I always tell Ryan, my job's harder. You just make it, I got to try and break it. So, um, so you, you want to kind of go in and I, I love hearing patient experiences and, and, you know, we didn't get a lot of 06, you know, combat injuries coming in. Um, getting this device. And so, you know, one thing we, I think we always try to pride ourselves on is, you know, just from the, you know, the, the private all the way up to tier one, you know, special forces guy, we, we wanted to treat everyone. You, once you're in our program, you were in the program and everyone did this exact same thing. So can you kind of go into your experience of coming down to the center for the intrepid and, and going through all of that? And, and don't go into my bad stuff, you know, just, oh. just really good. Yeah. It uh, it was awesome. I mean, I just, I'll just kind of, you know, foot stomp what you just described. I mean, the, the, to, to your point of, and, and that's what I tell everyone today is that, you know, the, the you know, uh, you know, I refer to you and Ryan as, you know, genius incarnate, 
for coming up with this device to give folks like me and, and others that are in my situation and you know another option. Um, incredibly thankful for that. And and because it goes back to that, you know, that bias I highlighted that that was already kind of working its way out that I that I or my wife encountered with with some of the doctor comments, you know, as early as launch tool. You know, hey, you're gonna still have a great life as an amputee. That was kind of the maybe not bias, but that was the default solution, right? And uh, I'm not I'm not denigrating those doctors. I mean, that was what they knew, um, but but that was that's what we were kind of swimming against, if you will. And again, to to Dr. Jovak's credit, he didn't he didn't have that bias. And when when he heard about this, and, and even though he was unknown to him. He he facilitated us getting down. Um, so it was it was awesome coming down. You know, I, I came down initially. Uh, I want to say in February, so I wounded in August. Um, was was in Walter Reed for three months, so I got back to Fort Campbell. You know, mid November, and then by February of the following year, 2013. You know, I came down for an initial uh, fitting or casting. Um, you know, met you, met Ryan, initial casting, went back home while the device was was made and then came back, um, I want to say a month or a month and a half later in, in uh, March, early April for, for the for the training. For run. Yeah. yeah. Run. And, uh, you know, where I, so then I got the device um, and it was. Uh, I mean, it was just an awesome day, you know, when you get the device and you're able to even though, you know, even though it was very, uh, you know, I wasn't at full capacity or if you will, or the first time I put it on. Um, but yeah, I could certainly see the, the, the potential that, okay, this is going to be, this, this is going to work. Um, and, you know, I had that, that feeling, if you will, from, from the first day I was able to put it on and, uh, and then, you know, six weeks or so with, uh, with you in the program, you know, every morning, uh, and, and, but every day it was, you know, learning to do something a little bit different and being able to go, you know, whatever I accomplished the day before was able to go a little bit further, uh, and do something new or different or a little bit faster or a little bit, uh, a little bit easier than, than what I had accomplished the day before. Um, but it was really, you know, I tell I, I had to learn how to walk again, um, mm-hmm. learn how to use the device and, uh, and, you know, credit to you and to, um, Joe and the rest of the team for, for getting me and others through that. My favorite, you know, was oh, the, big, big Joe, big Joe, yeah, big Joe. <laughs> um, and, and, and so part of it was being able to, you know, seeing a path to, okay, I can. I can continue to be active and, and hopefully, uh, you know, as we've talked before, you know, one of my motivating, certainly I wanted just, just in terms of a human being and a, a husband and a father, I wanted to be able to be active, you know, f- with my family, but I also wanted to be able to, wasn't ready to get out of the army yet. And so that, that was one of my, you know, you know, I, I had a, I had a motivating purpose to kind of keep me focused um, which I was very thankful for. And, and so knowing that if I wanted to, you know, going back to your first question, you know, I've been 
been in the army since I was 17 and something I've wanted to do since I was in fourth grade. I wasn't ready to, wasn't ready to get out yet. You know, to me, that would, that would be, wasn't ready for that, that insurgent who had the explosive vest. I wasn't ready for him to make the decision on when I was going to have to get out of the army. You know, I wanted to be the one who made the decision, do it on my timeline and get out when I was ready. Uh, and so, and I wasn't ready yet. Um, and, and so that became, you know, one of my motivating purposes, if you will, during my recovery was if I'm going to stay in the army, uh, I want to do so in a manner that, that I can still, especially as an infantryman, that I can still do physically all the physical requirements that are expected of a soldier that are expected of an infantryman, even as a Colonel, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to you know, have to be given a, a waiver. I wanted to be able to still meet the same standards. So in my mind, I'm like, well, okay, if I want to, if I want to continue to serve, then in order to do that, I'm going to have to be able to still meet these physical, physical standards. And if I want to meet these physical standards, then I'm going to have to pay attention to, to Ryan Blank and Johnny Owens and Joe and everything else. All these other smart people are telling me, I'm going to have to pay attention to what they're telling me and, and, and follow through with it. Um, to, to be able to, you know, meet this goal. And so that you know, it just it helped focus me. Um, again, I was, I was fortunate that I had that opportunity. I, I recognized that some people, their wounds were just such, so grievous that they didn't have that opportunity. And, and so that, you know, that purpose, if you will, you know, was, was taken away from them. I, again, I was just very fortunate that I still had that opportunity that was available to me and I seized on it as, as kind of one of my, you know, one of my driving forces. Yeah. You know, I think when that window of opportunity opens up and, and you're like, I, I'm going to be able to maybe keep doing what I, what I've chose to do as a career and, and people seize on that. It, it's amazing. The, the spirit <laughs> and just the drive. And, you know, you were, you were one of our hardest workers and, you know, it, kind of a high profile thing we just did with Alex Smith, you know, he wasn't sure if he was ever going to get back on the field. And then he saw that once he got the center of Intrepid and got into the program and threw a football, all of a sudden he was like, you this like, it, you know, you're already motivated, but all of a sudden it's like, how much can I deadlift today type of thing? And oh, what do you mean? We're only doing, you know, four fifty uh, sprint repeats. I, you know, we need to be doing more of that. And so that's what I love too. And, and you were in so many others, you know, to understand our program, once you got in the IDEO, it was a lot of a work for Ryan to make that thing. And it's, it's, it's expensive, you know, I mean, the, it's a military thing, but you know, a lot goes into it, manpower hours and, and product. And then you got to really give us four to six weeks. And, you know, the newbies, like you start out like baby deers learning to walk that first week. And then by that fourth to six week, it's just, we love our, our veteran return to run people who are, showing the the new guys coming in, you know, okay, you, you can get to this point, but it's so much work and Johnny and Joe are going to be jerks, but yeah. <laughs> it's work to get there. Well, I, so I remember one thing you told me, you know, that, um, you know, the, the, so, you know, people will ask me today, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll ask questions about it. And I'm always happy to talk about it. If people have questions. And one of the questions I get kind of on a repeat nature is it'll be, Hey, where's the battery pack? You know, how, what, what's the battery? I'm like, Hey man, there's, there's no batteries to this thing. It's, it's all muscle. It's muscle driven, you know? And I, and I'll reach around and grab my, my glutes and my hamstrings and say, it's, it's all glute 
you know, this is what powers it. And so, uh, and I remember when I was there, you know, you had told me that I probably came down uh, a little prematurely that, 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 that one of my challenges when I was there during the initial program was that I still hadn't, you know, I hadn't given myself enough time to, to rebuild all the muscle that had atrophied uh, from my left leg. I mean, my left leg was, to me, was unrecognizable. It was almost 50% smaller yeah. from a pure mass standpoint than my right leg. And so you, you had kind of counseled me that, that I was probably there, you know, and, and that because I was there before I had allowed, my, you know, fully regained some of the strength of my leg, that it was, it was going to cause me challenges and being able to, you know, get the most out of the device. But I mean, I, so you were probably right. I was, I was eager to get, you know, wasn't going to yeah. wait, but I, I took that to heart in that, you know, from that point forward, I've been, you know, the, to, you know, develop and maintain my muscular strength in my lower legs. Um, it has been a, you know, continuing passion for me or, or, or focus. Cause the other thing you told me is that my muscle, I'm not, I won't tell you my age, but you can guess, you know, you told me, you know, muscle gain. And once you get past 50 becomes, uh, much, much harder. So I had that going against me as well. Uh, now so, I'm in my fifties and I'm feeling it too. Yeah. <laughs> and I blame Joe bag for not getting you strong enough. He, he should have had you stronger already. <laughs> um, but, you know, so the other, I talked about one of my kind of driving purposes. I mean, the other driving purpose that, that really helped me out, you know, me personally in my recovery is, as I'm sure, as you kind of saw, is just the, the involvement and the presence of my family. I mean, as I've kind of touched on, I mean, Christine was with me from the almost the very beginning, you know, in Launch Tool. And then, like I mentioned, my kids, I mean, my kids basically packed up you know, when I was, when I was wounded, it was their first week of school, you know, uh, and then, and then they're, you know, worked out of school, uh, and they came, they basically packed a suitcase and moved to Walter Reed, uh, and then three months there. And then they, you know, as you remember, they came down to, you know, we made it a family, uh, family journey. And, you know, they came down to, to center for the intrepid as well. And, 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 and that was a, a joint family experience, but they're incredibly disruptive, uh, for, for my wife and for my kids, you know, they were in and out of school. I didn't even know if they were going to, they didn't know if they're going to graduate their respective grades, um, that year, uh, if they were going to have to be held back, but, but that didn't deter them. And, and the fact that my family was kind of present throughout this journey, um, was incredibly, uh, motivating for me as well. And, and was, was the other thing that really kind of pulled me along. Um, and, you know, it, at any point in time, it, and there were, I'm sure there were several, you know, when I would feel sorry for myself, um, you know, my family would be there to kind of, you know, give me an attitude adjustment and get me, get me focused on the, you know, get me refocused on, on what was important. So. It's the most important part of rehab and they're the heroes as well. And, and we don't see how hard it is on, on the family members when these, especially these life-changing injuries, but just injuries in general. Um, it's, it's, we when we have the family involved, our success rates are, are just significantly higher 
don't have the studies, but uh, but I've got so much anecdotal data to know that. And and it's always a roller coaster. And so you know we're thinking you're good to go. I think it was like maybe your last day or second to last day. And you you remember your your knee. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think you got a, an infection again. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it took you down. You were on my table in, in a fetal position. It was, it was like crushed you so bad um, with how bad that infection hit. Yeah. I, I, yes, exactly that. I, uh, I don't, I think what the doctor said, there was, you know, whatever had been infecting my leg, was still kind of floating around in my bloodstream apparently. And, and they just decided to, uh, you know, in, a, in some sort of dormant status and decided to, to, to bloom or whatever. And, and so I had this uh, huge infection in my, in my left knee, but yeah, we, we were, I think I had already done my last session with you. We had just done, I remember, uh, we had done the popping the, champagne, man. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had done the, we had done the shuttle beep test and, and I was, you know, uh, had improved from the last time we had done the, the beep test. So I was like, Hey, this is awesome. And we were in the final stages of, of kind of getting ready to travel back. Uh, and we were, we were actually gone down to the Alamo and we we're kind of walking around, uh, with my kids. And, and I told Christine, I said, I, I can't, I can't walk anymore. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Um, I had, I think I had had a margarita at Rosario's. And so I was, I thought maybe, well, maybe it's, <laughs> I haven't had an alcoholic drink in a long time. So maybe it's, maybe it's the tequila from, from Rosario's. I don't know. I, I, I kind of attributed to that. And then we got back to the little apartment we were staying in and it just continued to get worse. And next thing I know, I'm, um, on your table in the fetal position and the doctor came over and he's aspirating fluid out of my knee. And then, then they checked me into the, you know, and so I, I said 28 surgeries where the, the 29th surgery was, a was the, uh, whatever they wash did. Out. Yeah. They went yeah. and washed out on my knee and, you know, that was the 29th surgery there at, uh, at, at Bamsey. Um, so, and it was, you're right. It was a kick in the gut. So I went from being a, if you will, a, a graduate of the, your return to run program. It just done, it was running around doing beep tests to here I am laid up in the hospital and, and, and you know, my, my range of motion of my knee was almost back to zero. And I, uh, it just, a uh, was, yeah, it's just a kick in the gut to think that, you know, you know, I'd come so far and then to then get kicked so far back, uh, was just really tough. And, and so when we drove home, uh, Christine and I, we laugh about this today, but they, you know, they gave me these, uh, I had to be, I would to be on these pretty strong antibiotics for about a three week course. And, and so they were these little balls that, of, you know, uh, grenade bombs of, of antibiotic fluid that Christine was having to, so she's driving the car, you know, 16 hours back to Fort Campbell and, and, you know, every eight hours of pulling off at a, at a rest stop, having to change out these antibiotic things on my arm with a, with a pick line on my arm. And, uh, but that, that's where we were. And again, you know, that's, that's what she did for me, uh, to, to get me back. Um, you know, and I, back, back to the family aspect. I mean, I've, you've heard me say before, I mean, I, I'll tell people that, you know, I incurred the, 
I incurred the physical wounds uh, and, the, and the surgeries and the, 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 the scars of, of what happened to me. Um, but I, you know, I tell people as my family that incur the, you know, the, the, the emotional and mental challenges that my family incurred were to the same degree and same magnitude as the physical wounds that, that I had to bear. And, uh, and that's just one example of, you know, one of, one of many examples of what Christine had to go through and kind of, you know, being a, being a caregiver for me, you know, throughout my, my journey of recovery. Yeah, it's hundred percent. And then you, yeah. So we're like, he's great. And then we send you back to Jovag and the guys at Fort Campbell and you can barely bend your knee. He's <laughs> like, what did, yeah. what did you guys what do to him, man? But then I know uh, those guys, you know, kind of continued to care once you stabilize. And I know he was sending me these amazing videos. You were sending me your PRs for your, your lifts and things like that. And so let's just kind of move in and wrap up into the progression and how the career just kind of finished off here. So he went from, I don't know how you're going to walk again to, okay, now I'm going to stay on in the military. Yeah. And so throughout this whole ordeal, I had, I had uh, the good grace of the army. It remained in command. Um, And so when I went back, you know, I went back in April, May. So I had a couple more months in command. And then in July, I relinquished command. Um, I was able to kind of get back to, I was, I was on the path back to being able to walk again after my knee kind of recovered. And so one of the, one of the highlight events for me was you know, when I relinquished command, there's a part in the ceremony where the, the, the outgoing commander, which would, which was me, you, you do what's called an inspection of troops where you basically walk around the formation of the, of the assembled troops with the incoming commander. And it's, it's meant, it, the, the, the tradition of that is, you know, the outgoing commander is, is verifying through physical visual inspection with the incoming commander that the, that the unit is fit, you know, that you're handing over a unit that is fit and, and, and disciplined and ready. And that's kind of the tradition of that walk around the troops. Um, and so as we're getting ready for this ceremony, uh, my, one of my, uh, staff sergeants major asked me the question that probably was probably unsaid, but on everyone's mind was, Hey, sir, do you want to, for the inspection of troops, do you want to, you want a Jeep to be able to drive you around? And I said, hell no, sir, major. I'm back. Sorry. So that's what I did. And, uh, and again, it was uh, a credit to a whole lot of people. You know, from the uh, from the State Department guy that you know put the tourniquet on my leg to Sergeant Half Hill, uh, to you and Ryan Blank, and to all the doctors and nurses and physical therapists in between, you know that uh, <clears throat> that allowed me to do that. And it was, uh, you know, at the time when someone asked me, what, you know, why'd you make a big deal out of that? And I said, well, that's my way of, you know, to me, that was my way of showing, you know, that the, what those two uh, insurgents did on, on 8 August 2012, that they did it in vain and that, you know, they weren't, they weren't going to be victorious, if you will, over, over, over 
you know, me and, and my family. And so it was, uh, anyway, that was a, that was a key event for me. And uh, amazing. as, as you highlighted, I was, I was then able to go out and, um, you know, the army took care of me. They, they, they allowed me to continue to serve. And I was able to go out to, uh, to Fort Lewis in uh, Tacoma, Washington and serve uh, a guy named Steve Lanza was a division commander, major general at the time. And he, he, he didn't know me, he'd never served with me, but, but, but he, he took a recommendation on me and, and uh, took a chance on me, even knowing the condition that I was in, but he, he took a chance on me and allowed me to come out and be his chief of staff for two years. Incredibly grateful to him. And, and so that was my focus was, I, you know, again, going back to, I want to make this decision. I want to get out on, on my own timeline. And so I, you know, I'd say, hey, I want to go do one more assignment and then I'll look at, you know, transition out of the army. And that was, so I went out to Fort Lewis and, um, and, and that was my intent. You know, after I did that for two years, I was looking at, uh, at transitioning out of the army. At that point I was, you know, senior colonel, I've been in for 26 years. It would have been a good time to get out. Um, and then unexpected to me, you know, then the, then the army promoted me. And so, um, very, very privileged for that, you know, for that recognition, I guess, if you will, by the army to, or, or you know, to be able to continue to serve at, a, at another level. And so, you know, that was, you know, that, that afforded me the opportunity of another six years, you know, as a, as a service as a general officer and deployed two more times, once to Jordan. And then uh, again, back to Afghanistan, uh, which was probably one of the hardest things because uh, the deployment to Afghanistan kind of came on in a very unexpected manner. And so when I had to go home and tell Christine that, um, mm. I didn't tell her, I mean, I asked her. Because if she would have said no, I would have, I would have not gone. And uh, even if that would have, it meant retirement or resignation or whatever. So I didn't tell her, I mean, I asked her, but it's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to ask her. Um, yeah. You can imagine from her perspective for me to come home and say, you know, Hey, the army wants me to go back to Afghanistan where the last time I went there, you know, she was having to come police me up in launch Um, But to her credit, you know, back to my previous comment about the, the value of her support, and the burden that she had to bear, I mean, to her credit, she said, yes. Um, she wasn't very happy about it, but, but, she, but she said yes. And so um, anyway, that, you know, that promotion, you know, entailed six more years of service and sacrifice, you know, for, by me, service by me, but, you know, more sacrifice by my family as well um, until I decided to retire last year. So, um, but you know, when I, when it did come time, it was, it, again, it was my decision. And, and again, the, the, I, I can't even begin to, the, you know, the, 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 the list of names of is countless almost of people that again, from the beginning to, to now to everything in between that have been part of my journey and helping me and my family is just uh, incalculable in, in terms of what they have, provided to me and my family and, and what it's meant to us. So 
incredibly thankful. Yeah, I mean, that's, the story is incredible. And I think, again, even when you, you were talking about getting that tourniquet on, but I mean, like starting at the point of flow all the way down to the very end. I mean, the, the amount of people that touched you and the amount of work you and your family put in, um, our, our country owes a, a great favor to everyone involved. And so thank you so much for your service, man. Uh, you know, uh, I love you and, and Christine and your family. And so um, it's sad to see you you head off to a, to a completely different state, but um, what everything you've done is, is, is just truly an inspiration. And I love it. And so I guess, you know, from a Memorial Day wrap up podcast, any, any thoughts as a retired general 33 years in on, on Memorial Day? Yeah, thanks very much, Johnny. Thanks, uh, and thanks to you for, for for doing this podcast. You know, in special uh, recognition of Memorial Day. I think that's uh, that's awesome uh, to to be able to kind of keep the spirit and the idea of Memorial Day alive. So I appreciate what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I would just. Uh, I mean, I appreciate always appreciate the uh, chance to tell my story or share my story and, and in hopes that that other people that are going through similar journeys, whether whether they have injuries or challenges caused by military service or or otherwise, um, you know, to be able to share my story in the, in the hopes that, that others may benefit from it in some way, shape or fashion um, in whatever journey they're going through of, of overcoming a challenge or, or recovery. But um, you know, I, I never forget or never want to forget. And I always also want to take the chance to remind folks that, you know, my journey started from a, unfortunately, a tragic incident that uh, resulted in the, the loss of lives of, of four Americans, uh, three soldiers, uh, Command Sergeant Major Kevin Griffin, uh, left a left behind a, a wife and a, and a daughter, um, Major Tommy Kennedy, left behind a, a wife and a young family and, and, uh, his, and some brothers and mother and father. Um, uh, Major Walter David Gray uh, also left behind a, a wife and young family of daughters. And then uh, a, a U.S. Army, um, excuse me, a U.S. Agency for International Development, a civilian servant uh, who I Unfortunately, didn't get, chance, didn't get a chance to know personally, but was on the patrol. Mr. Uh, Abdel Fattah uh, worked for USAID. You know, those four individuals, you know, lost their lives and, and, and had in their families, you know, I always uh, continue to recognize that their families because you know, they live with that loss every single day. Um, whether it's, a, a, again, as I highlighted, a wife or a, a child or a, a sibling or a parent. I mean, they, they live with their losses, with these losses every single day. Um, so I just want to recognize those, those four individuals uh, as part of, you know, as part of this story that, that uh, we've been able to share today. So again, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, and there are many more. I mean, these are four, uh, but as everyone knows, there are many more, you know, I unfortunately have had in, in various commands of, you know, been in various units that have that have lost you know many other soldiers as well. But uh, just the chance to be able to highlight uh, the, the the lives and service of these four today, I appreciate that opportunity, Johnny. Thank you, Dan, and thank you for your service. And um, enjoy beautiful Florida. You deserve it. All right. Thanks very much, Johnny. Thanks.
But now if you would join us in participating in the National Moment of Remembrance. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.